But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And joining us today from the United States is David Nywert, the author of Alt America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump. Thanks for joining us, David. Pleasure to be here. Uh, just to begin with, I wonder if you've been on this beat for a very long time. I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about your history investigating the radical right. Sure. Well, my very first job in newspapers back in 78 and 79, I was in the panhandle of Idaho working as the editor of a little paper in a town called Sandpoint that was all of about uh, 20 miles north of the Aryan Nations compound, or at least it was, they, we were there, I was there when those folks moved in to northern Idaho and became a major presence in the state over the next 20 years. And so I was, uh, I had very early exposure as a young 20-year-old journalist to this stuff. And it remained in my background, sort of, you know, just part of my work as as a journalist, as a newspaper guy, uh, covering this stuff for, you know, through the 80s and into the 90s. And getting into the 90s, I decided to start taking it seriously as a beat. I, you know, I, I was starting to freelance and I decided I, I wanted some key subjects to sort of make my regular metier of, of, of journalism. And so I chose, you know, writing about the extremist right because it was very clear that they were a a story that was never going to go away and b were going to be a constant source of important stories because they were this phenomenon that was really entrenched and they just uh, they're so toxic that they always create problems for people who live around them and certainly in the northwest we have had our share of people living around them so I started writing about them in the early 90s, started writing about the militia movement that was gathering steam out here. I actually was doing it, it was at the time I was an environmental reporter, but I was doing it as an environmental backlash story. Then when the Oklahoma City bombing happened, I suddenly became a militia expert <laughs> with air quotes, uh, because I was one of the only guys who'd actually gone out and talked to these people. That was kind of how I, I more or less fell into this, but I also realized it was going to be, it was an important subject and needs to be followed as a you know sustained beat uh, and taken seriously because the institutional knowledge is is uh, really important and you know the, the sort of historical knowledge, historical understanding of them. The um, Aryan Nations briefly erupted in Australia a couple of years ago when uh, several supporters in Perth, well, they're now in jail having uh, committed, uh, been convicted of murder. And that's the thing. There's always violence around these guys. I mean, no matter, every time they pop up, you know, wherever these guys pop up, you can be sure violence will follow. Really horrific violence, usually. And you, you said that they were willing or happy to talk 
to a journalist. Is that still the case? Well, certainly the militia folks uh, would, yeah, and they were always willing to talk. When I would cover, like, Aryan Congresses there in Hayden Lake, you know, they would talk to reporters because they were trying to do a sort of open house so everybody could see what they were about. You know, it was all propagandized. I mean, you couldn't believe anything that was coming out of their mouths, and it was all, you know, they were trying to blow smoke up your rear end is what they were trying to do. Most of the time, you'd be covering them. So it was, you know, soft pedal propaganda stuff. And that was about the only time that I uh, have talked to, uh, you know, actually neo-Nazis. Now, militia patriot types are a totally different breed of cat. They're much more mainstream. And, yeah, they're they're less threatening. They're not quite as violent. But inevitably, they often will stray right into the world of of the violent right as well. In the past few weeks, uh, something that's been quite striking to watch from afar is a vision of uh, armed protesters uh, in you know state legislatures, often wearing Hawaiian shirts. Yes. Uh, could you could you explain to us uh, what's going on there and what is the, what is the boogaloo? What the hell are those Hawaiian shirts doing under their body armor? All right. It's a very long explanation for that, but it's part of this thing, part of the problem. One of the things that that I could tell you from having covered the radical right back into the 70s and 80s is that they have fantasized for forever about the plan, their hopes and desires to see a you know, civil war, a second civil war, or a race war, uh, depending on how you want to they want to frame it in America that would basically allow for the resumption of white supremacist rule in the United States. And that's, you know, what they do. I mean, and this goes back to, you know, in the eighties when I was covering the Aryan nations, they, they were planning, the reason they were there in the Northwest was that they were planning to create a white homeland in the Pacific Northwest where only white people could live. And as it turned out, you know, the, attracted this really amazing uh, criminal element that, well, it culminated in an, out, in an outfit called The Order that in 1984 went on a uh, multi-state rampage. Uh, they robbed uh, multiple banks and armored cars and uh, got millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars in stolen money that they distributed to other white supremacists in the movement. They also assassinated a radio talk show host named Alan Berg, in Denver, Colorado. And these guys are eventually tracked down by the FBI and cornered up here in my neck of the woods in Whidbey uh, Island, you know, and, and Robert Matthews, the leader of the gang, died and the rest of the gang all wound up in prison. Uh, one of the members of the gangs, that gang, incidentally, was the fellow who invented the infamous uh, neo-Nazi slogan known as the 14 words. And so, yeah, they, they've got quite the legacy. So, you know, and, and that's the thing is that every every time these guys have done, you know, gotten themselves together in any shape, form, or fashion, they've started fomenting these ideas about civil war. There's a book written by a neo-Nazi named William Pierce back in the late 70s, actually, called the Turner Diaries that describes this civil war. And the Turner Diaries was inspiration not just for the order, but also for Timothy McVeigh, 
who saw his bombing of the Oklahoma City Federal Building in 1995 as, uh, you know, the first blow uh, against uh, the New World Order. And yeah, he modeled it on a similar attack that was in the Turner Diary. And, and the Turner Diaries is still incredibly popular with the radical right even today. But more than anything, what's been happening is that they've been uh, taking their fantasies and, and whipping them up into a frenzy about a civil war. And the new term, the one is apparently it, it, you know, it came out of the 4chan and 8chan culture uh, and Reddit. And apparently it really originated in about April of 2018 at Reddit when a neo-Nazi poster suggested that they just call the uh, the supposed new the Civil War II the Electric Boogaloo. It was kind of an ironic joke, but that's what the alt-right specializes in. And so they call it the, the Boogaloo, uh, this uh, Civil War, and they've been talking about it intensely for especially the last six months. And let me tell you, during the in, in a pandemic, coronavirus pandemic now, it's just spiked and gone through the roof. So the Boogaloo, because they like to be on social media and are always trying to think of ways to avoid censorship, they've come up with a bunch of uh, sort of monomic nicknames for the Boogaloo that sound like it. One of them is Big Igloo. And so when they, you'll see them talking about the Big Igloo in social media and their flag, even uh, the, the Boogaloo movement flag features an igloo as well as a palm tree because one of the other nicknames that they've given it is the Big Luau, uh, as in a Hawaiian luau. And that's what the Hawaiian shirts are all about. The Hawaiian shirts are essentially a signifier that the person wearing it believes that they are participating in the Second Civil War, in the Boogaloo, and what it means on a sort of secondary level is, yes, they're they're willing to shoot you. You mentioned Timothy McVeigh just before. I guess the Oklahoma City bombing in the 90s uh, sort of put the brakes on the militia movement for a little while. Uh, it didn't stop the train. Uh, but there have been a number of massacres uh, in the past few years associated with the radical right and seemingly no impact on the momentum of the movement. What do you think has changed there? It's become wider spread in internet culture. And whereas in, in the 90s, McVeigh's act horrified people and sent a huge wave of revulsion across the country... We've had, because we've had an actual change in in our culture in the interim, mostly bred on the internet, beginning really with Dylan Roof's 2015 massacre of nine parishioners in Charleston, South Carolina. These acts are being actively celebrated by uh, members of the radical right in their online cultures. They're being... You know, it's it's there's something that you actually they actually it's what we call gamification of these acts where they are actually scoring each other uh, according to the amount of damage that they that they wreak. And the most notorious case of this, of course, was the gentleman from 
Australia who went to Christchurch and massacred 51 people in, in the mosques there. Um, his, he not only, uh, his act was live streamed and the guys who were watching it were scoring him and they still have scored him. Uh, according to the numbers of people he killed and, you know, the value of the targets and everything else. Um, and as well as they, they also scored him very highly for the, the val- what they saw as the value of the attack, which was, uh, you know, to really powerful act of terrorism. And since then, we've had, you know, a, a number of these other um, similar attacks uh, including the El Paso killer, uh, the Poway killer, and uh, the Pittsburgh killer, um, who actually preceded the Christchurch killer. All of these acts were, in fact, lauded and, and, uh, and applauded within their culture, within their circles on the Internet. And the levels of revulsion at the same time have been muted in large part because of right-wing media. Right-wing media doesn't want to acknowledge that these guys are an outgrowth of mainstream conservatism. It's particularly bad with Rupert Murdoch-owned media. Certainly here in the United States, Fox News is is an aider and a better of all of this phenomenon. Uh, they, they help generate the conspiracy theories. They ignore the presence of white supremacist terrorists, and they attack anyone who even discusses this stuff as actually systemic and organized terrorism. They like to present this as just, oh, this is mental illness. Oh, this is just an isolated incident. Oh, this just happens with an occasional crazy. And that's how they downplay this stuff. And so, you know, it's been a, a constant ongoing campaign of minimizing and normalizing this behavior that's gone on within mainstream conservative media uh, that is largely responsible for the fact that we are not standing up to this kind of terror in the way we need to. Well, that's certainly the case in Australia where Murdoch uh, franchises um, dominate the media landscape. And we've we've had just in the uh, last few years, I know in your book you make reference to various figures that have um, helped to popularise these sorts of ideas, including figures like Stephen Molyneux and Lauren Southern. And uh, when they talk about the Great Replacement, this is one of the themes that uh, the Christchurch killer wrote about in his manifesto. But when they came to Australia a couple of years ago, they were uh, given platforms on Sky News, which is Australia's equivalent to Fox uh, they were written about and praised in the tabloid media. And while there were certainly voices in opposition, I guess you could read that as evidence of a, a, a kind of shift in the media culture where these sorts of figures that would normally be regarded as uh, the racist cranks that they are, are suddenly being presented to the public as though they were you know, a legitimate voice on the political spectrum. So I guess one of the things that your book's Alt America does is kind of trace the history of how those sorts of ideas and those figures have become part of the popular culture, which arguably found its kind of culmination in Trump. 
And um, could you talk a little bit about how you think that's kind of evolved a little more over the past, say, 20 years or so? It has become... I mean, I think there was an Australian columnist just last week who posted something that was like straight out of replacement theory. I wrote a column that was just horrifyingly edging right up to overt white supremacism. And so, yeah, um, I mean, this is a major part of the dynamic is that you'll have this sort of um, denial that you know we're not really you know we 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 abhor racism and we want nothing to do with this and that then they'll sort of simultaneously do this uh nudge and wink uh behavior with people who are actually you know outright misogynists outright racists and outright nativists and um and, and this is how this is how you build these sort of larger attitudes that allow this stuff to spread and gain uh, traction in the larger society. So would you read it as part of being a kind of a product of the concentration of media power? Is that one of the key uh, factors? Well, yes. I mean, look, a healthy, open society, a healthy democracy has multiple sources of information has a really wide open information system where people can exchange ideas. And and that requires a diverse media system. You can't have all the newspapers owned by the same damn company in the entire country. I'm sorry that I know that that's what's happened in Australia. And it's, it's frightening because, you know, it means that you have mono voices you have no diversity in your voices you have no dissent and and that includes within the ranks of the journalists because i mean i i had to say when i was in australia as much as i enjoyed being there i was frankly just appalled at the newspapers i mean the the, the broadcast media comparatively is actually very responsible which isn't the case in the united states compared to uh print newspapers because they're all they're all doing material, you know, they're doing this material that, I mean, some of it is just like even in the, the coverage of criminal cases. They're just uh, willing and blatantly open about slanting the coverage, about uh, using bias in their reportage, uh, coming to conclusions uh, before there's any actual evidence. And the, the very sort of things that, you know, if you're an American journalist, you're taught that this is, uh, that that's, you know, a very, at least, look, I'm an old-fashioned guy, so this is probably not getting taught anymore, but but I came up in a time in journalism when that was considered just unbelievably unethical. Nowadays, when you have no diversity in voices, when you have no dissent, and you just have a sort of rigid, monochromatic approach to reporting on everything, it means that you really don't have an, a, an open democracy uh, because the exchange of information that's required for that democracy to work uh, is going to fail. One issue I'm confronted with in writing about the far right is, um, on the one hand, wanting to draw attention to what I think are um, uh, critical factors in explaining what's going on, especially in terms of 
I guess, far-right actors, but at the same time not wanting to give them undue influence. How, how do you approach that question in terms of how you go about uh, reporting on this, this subject? Well, I, I honestly, I, I try to do it the, the way I have done it since the time I was a cub reporter back in Sandpoint, Idaho, which is basically to sit back and let them talk, listen to, listen to what they're saying, pay careful attention, and then uh, go out and report it accurately, but contextualize it. I mean, a lot of what media does that's wrong in handling this uh, this subject, a lot of mainstream media, they fail to provide their audiences with the appropriate context. So they don't explain to people that, yeah, they, they want to, t- they talk about the replacement of white people by minorities. They call this replacement theory. And this is one of the, the great uh, fuel sort of propaganda points for a lot of this uh, terrorism that we've seen is this replacement theory. But reporters don't explain to their readers a lot of times that this replacement theory is uh, a direct outgrowth of long-standing, long-running anti-Semitic and racist uh, race theories that have been propagated by the white nationalist right since the 1970s and 80s and uh, and gained steam through the 90s. You know, th- there needs to be some kind of ex- explanation to the audience that these complaints that whites are the, the subject of genocide are fueled more by anxiety about, you know, demographic changes than they are about the reality of what actually happens in the real world, which is that, you know... Immigration and and immigration is a constant in in our national life and international life and and the levels of anxiety that these people uh, gen up around it is um, is deeply and fun, profoundly irrational. In the afterword of your book, Alt America, you, you take a look at whether uh, Donald Trump himself is an actual fascist and conclude that while he might not be, he's putting the US on a path to fascism. One of the criteria you use, though, is uh, whether he uh, employs an independent movement-driven paramilitary force to intimidate opponents. I was wondering if you still think that uh, he is not doing that, uh, especially in the wake of his calls on Twitter to liberate various states. Well, uh, I would say that uh, he's a lot closer to it (laughs) He's a lot closer to actually overt fascism than he was when um, when I you know when I wrote the book um, at the time, and I still do believe this that at the time I basically my argument was that he's not a fascist himself; he's a classic right wing populist demagogue. But, but fascism is essentially a form, a sort of metastatic, cancerous form of, of right-wing populism. My argument all along has been that, you know, he may not be fascist, but he is leading the country down a path that leads to fascism. I would say that's even more acutely the case now. I don't think, you know, yeah, I mean, when you start calling out these uh, and proving, uh, right, you know, 
tweet, tweeting approvingly uh, about the the people who are carrying guns into these capitals uh, and calling them great people, I think that that line, that distinction becomes moot. I think fundamentally he is uh, leading us right into fascism, and I don't really think that it's unconscious anymore. At least I'm, I'm, I'm very dubious that it's unconscious. I think he's actually conscious of it. We are, we're in a really grim situation in the United States, and we're really hopeful that, that you know, I, I have to tell you, I'm concerned that we're not even going to get to an election uh, where we can remove this guy because he's such an authoritarian that I would not be even remotely surprised if he uses the coronavirus pandemic as an as a, a rationale not to have an election or, you know, uses the social uh, dysfunction, including probably domestic terrorist violence that we're probably going to be seeing even more of in the next year and uses that as an excuse not to hold an election as well. But in any event, because I, but I have no doubt that the vast majority of Americans are ready to toss this guy out on his ear. And I believe he is going to do everything in his power to try to prevent that from happening. So we're in a very fraught situation. And, uh, yeah, know any good jobs down there, guys? <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a bit in short supply at the moment, I'm afraid, David. Yeah. <laughs> but one thing that's struck me in terms of Trump and his uh, rise to power is the seeming, well, the, the lack of opposition from within the Republican Party. There aren't any seemingly any voices within the party that could uh, potentially oppose him. And this seems to have been one of the longer term uh, outcomes of the Tea Party movement uh, in terms of there being a, a radical right wing insurgency within the party. And, and But yet, at the same time, as you've said, there's many Americans who would be, who would rejoice uh, should Trump be removed from office and uh, some other uh, perhaps more sensible person replace them. Can you speak to what currently constitutes uh, the political base for Trump? Um, because there's been a lot of debate and discussion about who is it among the general population, the US population, that actively supports him, who are the people who are coming out uh, with their guns and uh, camo to the capital? And and to what extent is this actually a, a not a populist, but a, a popular movement of support for Trump and his, his um, regime? Well, his base definitely these days is the Tea Party, you know, that and that really was always his base. And the Tea Party folks were, you know, that whole phenomenon was generated as resistance to um, Barack Obama's presidency, but it was, um, you know, it was always, and, and it was financed by a lot of these corporate powers, but what they were doing, of course, was trying to sort of gin up uh, the anger and discontent among the the conspiracist uh, element in the in the right, the Alex Jones audience and the people in rural America who are prone to conspiracy theories, 
and not just rural America, but on the internet as well. And so, yeah, I I mean, if you want to know his base, go go look at a QAnon site. <laughs> this is, QAnon is the, of course, the bizarre conspiracy theory that uh, is uh, built up around Pizzagate and and the claims of a massive global uh, pedophilia ring being run secretly by Democrats, and that um, you know the 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 idea with QAnon is that he's going to that Trump is uh, going to be doing mass arrests of all of these democratic and liberal media figures sometime in a, in a massive sweep sometime over the next year or so. And it's become a cult, a very large cult. They show up at all of his rallies and yeah. And a lot of the QAnon folks of course are also, heavily into the boogaloo. I mean, it's just this nasty cauldron of conspiracy theories, cockamamie uh, beliefs, and really hateful rhetoric in many regards. You mentioned uh, the Tea Party and how it was financed by corporate interests. Uh, there was a lot of dark money involved and you know, the uh, Koch brothers. Uh, do you see the influence of dark money also in these anti-lockdown protests? Yes, there has been a lot of dark money that actually uh, helped create these protests initially. Uh, some of it was coming from uh, the DeVos family. Some of it was coming from some longtime NRA uh, gun rights activists. But they... Um, one of the things, the interesting aspect of this is that the amount of energy and money that they had to put into doing this was just very minimal. Uh, they it really just took just the slightest nudge for for these protests to organize, and that was you know what it, what it really kind of suggests to me is that it's not like the Tea Party anymore when they did have to you know finance these rallies and spend a lot of money to, to get people organized. They've now raised this uh, sort of army of authoritarian followers to such a level that all they have to do is sort of sketch an outline for, for them and present them with an opportunity to go out and protest. And these people show up on the streets. And I've been covering a lot of their these events, I must tell you, over the past three years, involving the Proud Boys, and Patriot Prayer, and American Guard, these, these street brawling, right-wing street brawling gangs who have been creating riots, mostly in West Coast cities, but also, of course, it most infamously in Charlottesville, Virginia. You know, these folks are, it's basically been a growing, uh, ready-made army of street brawlers who will go out and defend literally anything Donald Trump does. And they, but what they, you know, I mean, honestly, they're as much about hating the left as they are about anything. I mean, really what these folks want to do is go out and bash some liberal skulls. And so they do. One of the um, striking contrasts, in terms of the policing of some of the recent protests about the lockdown is the, to I, guess, I suppose, to if you compare and contrast the policing of those sorts of events 
to those which have been mounted in order to assert that black lives matter and so on. There's a degree of, uh, well, quite, you know, massive police brutality in terms of policing those earlier demonstrations in defence of uh, basic civil rights and so on. What do you think is the kind of strategy that's being employed currently to police these protests and what does it say about the, the racial nature of this policing? Well, I, I have to tell you, what I'm seeing at these protests is exactly what I've been seeing at the protests that I've covered involving right-wing street brawlers, which is that the police take their side. You know, I've covered so many of these and I can tell you, does I've observed dozens of anti-fascists and left-wing protesters getting arrested for just protesting. And I've seen these Patriot Prayer Proud Boy types beating the holy hell out of people and cops standing by and watching. So, yeah, no, there's, there's a serious problem with the police. And one of the problems is that the police culture itself in America has become so right-wing. And, of course, it's always been somewhat authoritarian in nature anyway because it attracts authoritarian personalities, the, the whole line of policing work. But in the last um, 10 years, it's become enormously right-wing. A lot of this has to do, frankly, with the influence of Fox News. You know, it's sort of embodied in the response to Black Lives Matter, which was uh, to create a movement called Blue Lives Matter, that um, which is it, it was utterly nonsensical. Let me let me point out: Black Lives Matter. The whole point of that slogan and that campaign was to point out that black lives don't matter to white people in the United States, and they need to. That's the point of the slogan. It's not to say only black lives matter, which is why saying that or countering it with a, well, blue lives matter, the police lives matter uh, slogan is nonsense because, of course, we know police lives matter. Jeez, we already have laws on every in every state in the book and in every municipality that, that raise, you know, create incredible uh, sentences, you know, or, or criminal sentences and crimes for attacking or assaulting a police officer. Uh, laws on the book in every state in the country and on the federal laws as well that act actively protect police officers from assault. So, yeah, saying Blue Lives Matter is kind of like, yeah, we already knew that. But as using that as a counter to suggest that, um, that you know, well, you blacks are just, you blacks should just get in line with the rest of us is basically the sort of counter that they give. Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing this uh, in the last four or five years in the country where police culture has become incredibly right-wing, incredibly authoritarian. And it, frankly, over the last three years, they've been openly sympathizing and condoning and assisting uh, the radical right and their growth. The only uh, thing that's actually improved in the last year or so is that the FBI has taken a very active role in chasing down and uh, arresting these domestic terrorists in some cases before they can act. In that context, one thing that I found curious is if you examine the literature being produced by some elements of the FBI and police agencies generally who were um, examining uh, domestic terrorism threats, 
very often one of the key targets for these um, terrorists is the police and policing itself. And, and it's one of the kind of uh, chronic dangers for police are these actors and and the the Oklahoma bombing I suppose was would be one of the you know key moments in that those attacks upon the state and yet at the same time when it comes to uh, other forms of policing I suppose that there's a very light touch being employed so how, how do you explain or, or what do you think is going on with those apparent contradictions within uh, policing in the United States? You know, I, ultimately, I have to say it probably just comes down to the authoritarian natures of the personalities of the people who are doing the police work. Because, yeah, I mean, I, I noticed this. I mean, look, I, I've, give, I've given lectures. I've gone around and given talks to police agencies over the uh, 20, 30 years that I've done this work to try to – because the, the great threat to most police officers for most of the years I've been doing this – was sovereign citizens. Sovereign citizens have mowed down police officers around this country. Right-wing extremist sovereign citizens are they're this sort of outgrowth of the radical constitutionalist um, uh, type ideology that was part of the Patriot Movement. And those folks uh, shoot police officers who pull them over because they don't believe that, that cops actually have the right to uh, do anything to them. And don't have the right to issue tickets or take anybody to jail. That's part of the that far right belief system. So you know, I've I've done talks for years and years talking to police officers to tell them how to recognize sovereign citizens and how to avoid getting into a lethal confrontation with them. And um, so it, it's it just has was totally gobsmacking to me that. When Black Lives Matter erupted as a protest against police behavior, the response was that suddenly in the minds of these police officers, Black Lives Matter was an existential threat to them. And unfortunately, as it turned out, you know, there were a couple of incidents where um, surrounding Black Lives Matter events, there were some police killings in the United States, mainly in Dallas. Uh, the mass shooting of police officers there. So, yeah, uh, I've been utterly baffled as to why, um, you know, they could go on for years, sort of going, oh, yeah, I guess these right-wingers might be a problem. And then suddenly a black person uh, protests, black people start protesting their handling, and, oh, my God, they're going to kill us all. You know, it was... And ultimately, a lot of that just has to do with, I mean, these are just embedded attitudes about race and culture and crime that get, that get ground into our mentality and our way of thinking in the United States. A lot of, a lot of it is encouraged by um, uh, cheesy media uh, and really shallow media handling. Um, a lot of it is encouraged by um, even Hollywood depictions that, you know, treat black people as ordinary criminals and white people as as um, white pures and driven snow, you know. So those attitudes get embedded within police culture as well as every other culture. But uh, in police culture, it actually has the effect of 
um, having really lethal results. To just return to the that damned virus, uh, it seems to me with uh, the lockdown protests that two of the biggest problems they're going to face are one where states have reopened. I think Georgia has reopened somewhat and they've discovered that uh, people don't actually want to go out. And so the end result there is that not much changes, but also it seems that a lot of these lockdown protests are going to be uh, vectors for the disease to spread. So a lot of these people are going to get <laughs> very sick. How do you see the militia movement and a uh, radical right movement more generally uh, coping with coronavirus? Well, we've already seen, I mean, basically the movement is clearly uh, intending to exploit the coronavirus and, and try to use it to, you know, accelerate what they hope is the death of liberal democracy. Uh, they, they're using every, they're using the coronavirus as a, as a way to uh, spread fear and paranoia. And of course, they're throwing in the usual conspiracy theories, such as that, um, well, let's see, 5G is secretly responsible for the coronavirus. And, oh, let's also, uh, Bill Gates, uh, finance the uh, creation of coronavirus in a lab in Wuhan, right? I mean, these are some of the conspiracy theories we're getting. Um, and so, yeah, the, uh, it's, you know, the usual um, sort of garbage that we're seeing from them. But what it is doing is encouraging all these people to ignore uh, measures intended to protect their health and go out and... and uh, and expose themselves to probably uh, probably the coronavirus. I mean, we I saw some of the crowds at these protests uh, this past weekend. And these people were all packed in together, and I'm just thinking, oh yeah, in three weeks we're going to see a a, cl- a Salem, Oregon cluster, a Carson City, Nevada cluster. You know, I mean that because that's how the thing works. And the the reality is the 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 virus doesn't care about their constitutional rights or or their liberty or anything else that it doesn't care you know they they can sit and complain that that they're being subjected to tyranny at the hands of the government but they're subjected to the tyranny of this virus not the government and they don't seem to have figured that out david you've spoken about the influence of fox news and other key sectors of the U.S. media on public opinion in the United States. Um, But we also, I suppose, need to examine the influence of social media, of Facebook, of YouTube, and so on. And I guess the general trend has been to allow for these kinds of expressions, uh, even if they're disguised through the use of terms like boogaloo and so on and so forth, And, and the movement adapts as uh, I suppose what it brings to my mind is the way in which the Nazi movement in Germany and others in Europe adapted to the introduction of laws which, you know, prosecuted people for wearing the swastika and so on, that the movements were, I guess, stimmied in some ways, but also learned to adapt and to adopt new terminology and new symbols to express the same values. In terms of the coronavirus just recently, we've seen David Icke uh, removed from Facebook and from YouTube. And prior to that, we've seen Alex Jones uh, have his uh, platforms, well, also 
he has also been subject to deplatforming. So I guess what I'm asking is in terms of the political weight you give corporate media as opposed to, well, the, the, the legacy or traditional media on the one hand and social media on the other, what do you understand to be the current situation in terms of which gives uh, the extreme right uh, the biggest audience or the, the most influence? Well, I, I think, especially as far as the Boogaloo is concerned, um, it you really can't beat Facebook. Uh, Facebook has something like 125 uh, Boogaloo groups uh, that are sharing memes. And Facebook, uh, when questioned about this by media, has been very, very slow and very reluctant to remove Boogaloo material, even when it is just explicitly and insanely violent and frightening. It's re some of this, some of these memes and some of the stuff that these guys are sharing on Facebook is just profoundly disturbing. But they, uh, the Facebook's been very slow to bring it down. And of course, uh, you know, the other media as well, uh, YouTube has been slow to act. Twitter has been generally pretty good. But I, but I think you're right. I think the coronavirus has kind of been a breaking point for a lot of these companies because they really are cracking down on disinformation about the virus. It's like, it's kind of bizarre. It's like, yeah, you can go ahead and talk about murdering your neighbors, but don't spread misinformation about that virus. You know, it's like, okay, whatever. But yeah, uh, I think that the, I mean, eventually it's all going to, I think, get figured out. But these social media companies got into this business without any idea, without any intention of ever having to be in the position of being editors, of, of actually, you know, monitoring the content on it because they just thought, oh, we'll just have free content and, and make roll in the, roll in the money. And, uh, and now they're discovering that they actually have some some responsibility to the rest of society that is going to require them to uh, spend a lot of money and change their standards about what is permitted on their platforms and what isn't. If we do, then I guess when I think about how Facebook and other social media companies respond to this content, but media generally, um, it seems to me like it's the profit motive that tends to determine their actions and their policies. And in the absence of a legislative framework that makes it less profitable to allow for the distribution of lies and propaganda, they'll continue to do so. And whether or not uh, legislatures are able or willing to introduce such uh, those sorts of laws is, you know, varies according to the jurisdiction and the, I guess, political community in which those laws are enacted, but in the absence of that sort of um, lawmaking, I guess if you're a concerned citizen who's uh, concerned about the proliferation of these sorts of quite pernicious ideas, how should you respond and how can you act in a way that, I guess, you know, puts a break on the these sorts of, uh, you know, the distribution of these these forms of propaganda? Well, there are a number of things. One, one of the most important, of course, is that uh, 
is that, you know, I think that deplatforming does work, uh, removing these people from platforms where they can spread their hate is uh, really an important first step. But I think we also, you know, honestly, at the end of the day, I, I think uh, all of this has to do with the fact that we're right now dominated. Uh, our politics right now are, are dominated by a sort of sociopathic, even psychopathic approach to the world, in which which is utterly devoid of empathy and, and consideration of each other, of other people. And, um, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to, over the long term, have any kind of success is, uh, is cultivating a politics of empathy um, and, and rebuking and, and uh, standing up to the politics of hate. And I think we're a long ways away. It seems like we're a long ways away from kind of organizing that kind of politics uh, because we're so busy fending off the politics of hate. So I, I certainly encourage everyone to, you know, people to keep fighting and uh, to try to do their best to, you know, keep their heads up in this uh, horrendous incoming tide because um, the day will come when it will be uh, outgoing and we can uh, start to, you know, sort of swim in normal waters again. But but it's going to take work and it's going to take actually a conscious effort to to encourage, you know, a, a different kind of uh, approach to politics. And a lot of this has to do with with media. You know, I think fundamentally right-wing extremism is a politics of, of psychopathy and and uh, fundamentally, it it is all about tearing each other apart and you know doing it all for the sake of hearty individualism or whatever you want to call it. You know, but hey, you know, I grew up in the West. My great grandparents were were pioneers, and I know all about hearty individualism. And let me tell you, hearty individualism did not last for any more than a week without uh, a community around it to help. Uh, these farmers, these pioneers, these people in the Old West that we all hold up as icons of hardy individualism, they all helped each other. They all formed communities. They all had uh, practiced a politics of, of empathy. That's not what we're practicing now. And, and the sort of libertarian, Ayn Randian ideal of, of uh, you know, the individual being the essence of our politics is really toxic. All right, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, David. If uh, if people want to read more of your work, where can they do so? Well, I am a staff writer at Daily Coast, uh, dailycoast.com. That's K-O-S. Um, and, uh, and I also have a very active Twitter account, David Nywert, N-E-I-W-E-R-T, on Twitter. You can... Catch me at either of those places pretty regularly. Folks, uh, we're cutting the conversation off here, but we will go for a little bit longer on the podcast version, which you can access at 3cr.org.au slash yeah, We'll catch you next week. Global Intifada is up next. (laughs) 